This program is made possible in part by a grant from the Pulitzer Prize's Centennial Campfires Initiative for a collaboration between UPR, Utah Humanities, the Salt Lake Tribune, and KCPW. Campfires is a joint venture of the Pulitzer Prize's Board and the Federation of State Humanities Councils in celebration of the 2016 Centennial of the Prizes. The initiative seeks to illuminate the impact of journalism and the humanities on American life today, to imagine their future, and to inspire new generations to consider the values represented by the body of the Pulitzer Prize-winning work. The Campfires Initiative is also supported by the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation, the Ford Foundation, Carnegie Corporation of New York, the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Pulitzer Prizes Board, and Columbia University. Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. In his book, Black Flags, The Rise of ISIS, which is now in paperback, Pulitzer Prize-winning reporter Joby Warwick traces how the strain of militant Islam behind ISIS first arose in a remote Jordanian prison and spread with the unwitting aid of two American presidents. Drawing on high-level access to CIA and Jordanian sources, Warwick weaves moment-by-moment operational details with the perspectives of diplomats and spies, generals and heads of state, many of whom foresaw menace worse than al-Qaeda and tried desperately to stop it. Black Flags reveals the long arc of today's most dangerous extremist threat. Joby Work has been a reporter for the Washington Post since 1996. He's twice won the Pulitzer Prize for journalism and now for his book Black Flags, The Rise of ISIS. He's also the author of the book The Triple Agent, and he joins us from the offices of the Washington Post. Joby Work, welcome to the program. Pleasure, and happy Thanksgiving almost. Uh, happy almost Thanksgiving to you, yes. Uh, this, of course, is a very timely book, um, unfortunately so. Um, you know, Battle for Mosul uh, rages uh, as, as, we, as we speak. And one headline that I read, um, I'll just read it here. Uh, on the ground in Mosul, why the worst-case scenarios are coming true. It's, it has descended into bloody street-by-street fighting. Yeah, it's it's something that uh, I guess is not unexpected. There's some hope that Mosul was was hollowed out because we've been working on that, you know, sort of bombing campaign. We've been hurting their leaders. We've been doing a lot of damage, and there was a hope that uh, that, that this was going to be a hollow shell that would collapse, uh, you know, uh, with all this pressure. There's a hundred thousand troops that are marching in on Mosul, but in fact, ISIS is fighting to the last man. They they've mounted a fairly sophisticated defense of the city. That includes, you know, multiple suicide bombings and followed by commandos that are fairly well trained and come in and attack the Iraqi troops. So it's it's a street by street, house by house struggle, and it's very bloody, and it's likely to continue for a few more weeks at least. And of course, we have the situation in in Syria that uh, that seems to, to you know have no solution. Uh, let's uh, let's go back to the beginning. Uh, early in your book, uh, there's uh, some uh, startling uh, scenes in a remote Jordanian prison. This is a prison the Jordanian government uh, put back into use after mothballing it, you could say, for, for a time, because they had a group of prisoners they considered too dangerous to be in their regular prisons. And there we meet Abu Musab al-Zarqawi, the, I guess the, the, sort of the, the, the father of what became ISIS, as seen through, through the eyes of a young Jordanian doctor. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is really it's the most unlikely person you could imagine becoming the eventual head of a terrorist organization and really an iconic figure. But, you know, 20 years ago, this was a, a, a kind of a, a thug, a, a sort of a, a street criminal who became religious, 
is a kind of a common experience we've seen with other jihadists. But in the mid-1990s, he's stuck in this remote prison with about 50 others who think like he does. And one of the interesting eyewitnesses to the early evolution of, of ISIS or, or Zarqawi is this physician who happens to be the, the prison doctor. And he sees in this young Jordanian a man who is crude and uneducated and unsophisticated, but very charismatic, uh, someone who can command people to do his bidding just by a look, someone who's got an ambitious agenda for himself and also a vision of himself as a transformative figure, someone who's going to become, you know, an important jihadist leader. And this is something he begins to see for himself way back long before any of us had heard of ISIS, but way back in a Jordanian prison in the 1990s. Uh, and as you mentioned, Al Zarqawi's followers here, and he d- does have some followers. They're very organized, right? Uh, dress alike, they, they you know groom themselves alike, and they follow Zarqawi uh, through just commands of his eyes. Yeah, and this is a group that a lot of them had the experience of of fighting jihad in Afghanistan. That was a formative experience for Zarqawi. It was kind of the beginning of the mo- modern jihadist movement as we know it. The Al Qaeda movement really comes out of of that experience more than anything else, and so isolated together, segregated from the rest of the prison population, they become more of a cult. They, as you said, they start to dress alike. They have kind of a leadership structure, almost military-like, with Zarqawi being sort of the, the, the head disciplinarian. There's an ideological leader, someone named Makdizi, who becomes important as well, and just helping these men uh, develop an ideology that, that's it's very brutal and very violent and very aimed at overthrowing Islamic or un-Islamic governments as they see them in the Middle East. And Zarqawi being the man who gets gets things done, the kind of the man of action. Tell us a little bit more about Zarqawi. You mentioned he was not a cleric. He was a, You could describe him as a street thug who, who, I guess, came to have some ambitions. Yeah, and this makes him very different from many of the other jihadists we know. When we think about Osama bin Laden, who was actually an educated man, who was, who was an engineer, who had came from a, a family with money, who had traveled a bit, uh, Zarqawi was, was, other than his, his Afghanistan experience, he had none of that. He had dropped out of high school. He had been in prison um, multiple times. He had gotten in trouble as a kid for, for cutting other young people. He was a, a drug user, had tattoos, just a, a very un-Islamic young man. And he is, it, but the brutality, sort of this criminal mentality that he had as an individual, that carries through into his experience of jihad. So it's not really a kind of an ideological struggle for him. It's not uh, trying to win hearts and minds of Muslims around the world. He has a very brutal agenda, and that becomes the essence of his organization. And years later, that really is what ISIS is. It's not al-Qaeda. They're not looking to, to win friends around the world. They've got a brutal agenda, and they use very brutal means to achieve it. In fact, uh, al-Qaeda came to see some of his tactics as going too far. Exactly. It's interesting that several times in Zarqawi's personal history, he tries to become part of al-Qaeda. It happened back in the in the 90s after he got out of prison, goes to Afghanistan, and tries to join up with bin Laden. And the al-Qaeda folks don't want anything to do with him because they see Zarqawi as too extreme for them, which is an amazing thing to contemplate. The people that uh, brought us 9-11 and all the horrific things we've seen al-Qaeda do thought that he was too much of a wild man and just too out of control. And so they 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 essentially just sent him off in another direction. Later on, they become temporarily allied because Zarqawi ends up, ends up being very successful in Iraq, doing things that al-Qaeda can't do. And so they have a temporary truce where they let him sort of develop an al-Qaeda franchise. 
but this this splintering between you know sort of mainstream you know violent jihad and Zarqawi's movement goes back from the very beginning, and you see it playing out even now because Al Qaeda and ISIS really don't like each other. In fact, they they they're open enemies. It's interesting in a negative way that, uh, but for the Bush administration, and and uh, they were seeking a link between uh, Al Qaeda and Saddam Hussein. Uh, but for them uh, making Zarqawi that link, um, he he might have continued to be a sort of a lower-level aspirant. He, they made him a star. Yeah, and this is one of the extraordinary things about his, his story, uh, which I try to bring out in the book. There are so many possible moments where history could have taken a different path. If uh, it, it, was, it was, it's very likely we'd never have heard of, of Zarqawi, that no one ever would have known of this man or heard of ISIS, except for the fact that in uh, 2003, as the U.S. is getting ready to go to, to war in, Afghan, in Iraq, rather, we, we sort of need to make the argument to the world, why do we need to make, have this invasion? There are two pillars, uh, two rationales for the war. One is the weapons of mass destruction, we all know how that worked out. And the other is the possibility of a connection between al-Qaeda and Saddam Hussein. What if this Iraqi tyrant gives weapons of mass destruction to al-Qaeda? They could be even more dangerous. But the problem was there wasn't really any evidence of a link between al-Qaeda and Saddam Hussein, except for this one really interesting, intriguing person, uh, Zarqawi, who happened to be living in Iraq at the time. He was in the, in the northern no-fly zone area close to the Iranian border. And the fact he was in Iraq, and we had some unverified intelligence suggesting he may have connections with, with Iraqi intelligence. We elevated him as, as part of our reason for going for invading Iraq. Uh, Colin Powell gave a speech to the UN in 2003 in which he puts Zarqawi's picture on the big screen before the UN Security Council, essentially making Zarqawi a poster child for this connection between Saddam Hussein and al-Qaeda. It turned out there was no connection at all, and that later comes out. It turns out to be not true, but in that single speech, we essentially made Zarqawi an international hero, and suddenly jihadists from around the world want to join his movement. They want to give him money, and Zarqawi is able to move himself into Baghdad to wait for the American troops. You know, not Osama bin Laden, but this Jordanian that no one had ever heard of until then. And then, of course, uh, other you know much recounted uh, mistakes as we see it in the in hindsight, the Bush administration. Uh, you know, decommissioning the the army, uh, banning the Baathist party. So you, then you have some trained people who can then flow to to terrorists like uh, Zarqawi. Right, and there would have been a insurgency in Iraq no matter what. But here you have in in 2003 this combination of this sort of fanatical Jordanian and his group, this organization that's you know re- religiously fanatic and and they want to, to to do big things. They want to fight the Americans. And they become kind of this, this, uh, the nucleus of a terrorist organization which attracts all these Iraqi professionals that no longer have jobs. So you've got army officers, intelligence officers, you know, Ba'athist party leaders who want to fight the Americans, but they're not organized. They don't really have a, uh, you know, a way to do it. And so they join forces with this Jordanian. And that makes his group so much more powerful because you have this, you know, both these sort of the crazies, but you also have the Iraqi professionals who aren't particularly religious, but they know how to, if they have good intelligence, they know how to build weapons, they know how to carry out bombings. And this makes Zarqawi's little group you know, much more powerful, much more potent than it would have been otherwise. I wonder if we could explore that. What's the difference in what became uh, ISIS? Uh, in a review of your book in the Boston Globe, I thought uh, the reviewer uh, phrased it well. He said, why this time around? The same old cocktail of jihad, gulf money, impressionable testosterone-filled volunteers 
Why don't yield an army and a government in waiting more effective than any of its regional peers? Yeah, and I think part of it is this this combination of the sort of Iraqi professionals, which you don't really see as much in, in groups like Al Qaeda, and this really fanatical core. And also the thing that Zarqawi wanted to do very quickly early on in his in his career as a terrorist was he was enamored with this idea of rebuilding, restoring the old Islamic caliphates. These, mystical empires of the centuries past that had been sort of wiped out in his mind by colonial powers, by Western powers. And he thought by creating this caliphate, by essentially grabbing and holding territory, sort of planting the flag, then you give Muslims around the world something to rally around. You know, Al-Qaeda never tried to do that. They saw restoring the caliphate as some distant vision that maybe in decades or centuries in the future that you know, this, this caliphate would reappear. So Caliph wanted to do it right now. And his followers seized on this vision, too, and they, they really tried to make it happen. And that's why you see ISIS doing something that no terrorist group had really done on such a scale, which is to essentially declare, ter- you know, hold territory and declare this to be sort of the holy Muslim empire of, of centuries past. And that's a very powerful notion. And people who aren't necessarily, you know, ideological extremists saw something attractive in that. And so you see people joining this cause that, that might not have otherwise done so. Because that, that's a, that's a main pillar in the in the attraction, I guess. In, in the West, we have trouble understanding why so many recruits just seem to flow uh, to to ISIS, including from yeah. you know modern Western states where we think we're integrating people. Yeah, and I think it's partly because you saw this this group being successful. They were successful in Iraq in the in the in the uh, insurgency against U.S. forces. Uh, so you saw people coming from around the world to join Sarkawi's organization. Even more so when ISIS you know, comes to power, and they appear to be unstoppable. They're on the march. They're they're gaining territory in, in eastern Syria. They're able to overrun you know entire Iraqi divisions in Iraq. They declare themselves to be you know the, the, the heirs to this great caliphate of old. And so all these things seem very appealing to sort of radically minded young Muslims around the world. Some of them you know are motivated by this fight against you know. Uh, tyranny in Syria, the, the Assad dictatorship, or, or uh, a bad prime minister in in, uh, in Iraq, they see as, uh, as as a foe of Sunnis around the world, and and so who's really able to stand up to these bad forces? You know, it's ISIS. They're they're the ones that are having success. They're the ones that are brutal enough to get the job done. And so you have this this mass movement of of recruits from around the world on a level we've never seen. It's something like forty thousand people immigrated from other countries to join this organization, which is far more than, than went to Afghanistan in, in the 80s to, to join al-Qaeda or to join the Taliban, far more than uh, went to Iraq to help Zarqawi. This is really something that's unprecedented in modern times. So I guess success breeds success. You, you, you see uh, a, a movement that's now in control of territory and on the march, and you want to join. Yeah, and up until last year, really about the middle of 2015, you know they they were able to to say to people around the world we're winning that this is an unstoppable movement if you want to be part of this revolution you've got to join us and they also have this apocalyptic message which is this is not just the beginning of the, of the, this new caliphate but it's the beginning of the end of time we're ushering this final ushering in this final battle between the forces of evil and the forces of good there's going to be a showdown with western armies in Syria that was actually Zarqawi's prediction. And so, you know, not just uh, this is not just a chance to join a victorious organization, but a chance to kind of uh, be part of the changing of history. 
And that was a very attractive message to, to, as we've seen, many thousands of young men from around the world and a few young women, young women as well. So these recruits, uh, uh, preconditioned those, they, they, they have to be radicalized, right? And it, it seems like if, if you look at all these recruits pouring in, perhaps we're, we're losing that battle. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because the, the ISIS is democratic in, this, in a strange way, in a sense that unlike al-Qaeda, which made you, you know, you know stand at a distance while they evaluated you, and then you had to go to a, a training camp, and they indoctrinated you, and only after a while were you, you know, able to join this organization. Uh, ISIS is open to pretty much anyone, and so you see people for joining for all kinds of reasons, and you don't have to have, you know, a, a committed ideological view, you know, to provide the training when you get there. And in fact, you don't even have to travel to the, to the caliphate at all. You can be, become a sort of a, a soldier of ISIS in your hometown, and we've seen that played out over the last uh, few months in, in horrific ways. Mm. So it is, it's different in that way, and they, they do have this broad universal message, which up to, again, last year seemed to be continuing to draw lots of young people to, to the cause. Over the last year, we've seen actually a, a pretty sharp decline in people trying to come to the caliphate. We also see in, the pub, in public opinion polls that support for ISIS is dropping among sort of the core constituencies, which include young Arab men and women around the Middle East. So defeats that they're suffering right now do seem to be eroding their support, and that's all for the good. Before we take a break, and then I want to come back and, and pick up uh, Zarqawi's history and then go on to uh, one of his successors, I guess the, the current leader, Baghdadi, uh, and and then bring it forward to today. Uh, I want to go to to your afterward. We'll skip around a little bit. Um, and you talk about a young man, a young Belgian, who was involved in, uh, in the 2015 terrorist attacks on, on Paris, Abdul Hamid uh, Abaoud, um, he has an interchange with a with a friend that you recount. Uh, uh, I'll just quote from the page three twenty one. Uh, the friend was troubled by Abaoud's callousness at the loss of innocent life, and she told him so. This is not Islam, she said. The young man struggled. The young man shrugged. Collateral damage, he said. That was nothing. After the holidays, uh, you'll see. And that that's kind of in in, in a personal encounter. The battle that's going on for hearts and souls in in the Muslim community, isn't it? The between, I guess, mainstream, moderate uh, Islam and and radical Islam. Yeah, absolutely. And what's interesting about this Abuud character is he's so much like the founder. Here's another young man who had been you know, known to law enforcement, but not as a a, a religious fanatic or a radical, but as a criminal. He had been in jail. He'd He'd gotten in all kinds of trouble as a kid. His life seemed to be spiraling out of control. And then he finds a cause. Suddenly there's this, uh, this war going on in Syria. There's this intriguing new organization that's trying to appeal to Muslims around the world to do some pretty, uh, uh, you, know, you know, terrible things, some brutal things. And this, this young man became one of many sort of, you see, dozens just like him, people coming from, from you know, prisons, from juvenile delinquent uh, centers and, and heading off to, to, to fight ISIS because it gives them a purpose in life. And so for someone like him, he's had kind of a, a brutal criminal background. He's not that concerned about the brutality of the organization. In fact, it appeals to him in some strange way. And, and, and these are now the foot soldiers. And you can just imagine in Europe alone the, you know, the many thousands who are potentially uh, you know, targets for this message, and and they've these are the ones that have become kind of the core of ISIS as we know it now. 
Let's take a break. We're talking with uh, Washington Post reporter Joby Warwick. Uh, his new book, Black Flags, The Rise of ISIS, is now out in, the, in paperback. It's winner of the Pulitzer Prize, um, and we're talking about uh, ISIS. Um, of course, a very timely uh, battle in Syria is going on. The battle for Mosul is going on right now. Uh, ISIS is, as we speak, in control of large swaths of land, actually governing in a, a state, you could, you could call them. That's what they call themselves. Uh, we'll talk more about ISIS, including Zarqawi's tactics. Uh, he, he's, he becomes very, um, uh, would you say, very, um, uh, very good uh, in, in propaganda. His tactics are, are very bloody, very brutal, uh, even in a world stands out, even in a uh, an area of the world that's known as brutal and bloody. We'll talk more about that and uh, bring it forward to today following this break. This is Management Minute by Professor Scott Hammond. Let's get this one right. The group leader called out to her team who was building a complex custom demise. Then she corrected herself. She said, let's get this one righter. Awkward language aside, people who work continuous improvement, lean manufacturing, or enterprise excellence know that every product and every process can be made better. Nothing is ever perfect. They are comfortable with the permanent question, how can I make that better? If you cannot see ways to improve your product or service, ask your customer. If they don't tell you, your competitor might. But by then it might be too late and you'll be out of the game. The Management Minute is brought to you by our members and the USU Shingo MBA program at the John M. Huntsman School of Business, a 15-month graduate degree for executives giving knowledge and skills to leverage the principles and tools of lean continuous improvement. Huntsman.usu.edu. This program is made possible in part by a grant from the Pulitzer Prize's Centennial Campfires Initiative for collaboration between UPR, Utah Humanities, the Salt Lake Tribune, and KCPW. Thanks for joining us for Access Utah. We're talking with Joby Warwick, Pulitzer Prize winning reporter for the Washington Post. He uh, is joining us from the offices of the Washington Post to right now. His uh, book, Black Flags, The Rise of ISIS, is winner of the Pulitzer Prize. You're welcome to join the conversation here. A couple of methods by email to upraxis at gmail.com, upraxis at gmail.com, uh, or you can reach us by phone to 800-826-1495, 800-826-1495. We've talked about the rise of Abu Musab al-Zarqawi, uh, the founder of what became ISIS, um, we, we meet him first in the book in a remote Jordanian prison. Uh, he's released and uh, ends up uh, heading to Iraq. And uh, we'll pick up the story here. I guess uh, people might wonder, Joby Warwick, Jordanian government had him in a prison. Why did they release him? You know, this is one of these other strange twists of, of fate that, uh, that, that really kind of you could see history pivoting here on this, this one moment. But Zarqawi was arrested. Uh, he was part of this terrorist cell in Jordan. They all These guys came back from Afghanistan, and they were looking to continue their kind of Taliban jihadist fervor. So they were doing things like uh, trying to blow up liquor stores and, and porno houses and things like that. There's this great story about how one of them went into a, a X-rated movie theater to try to blow the place up, sits down with the, the bomb at his feet, and then gets so engrossed in the movie he forgets all about the bomb. <laughs> which then explodes, he loses his legs, and nobody else is hurt. But that kind of gives you an idea of the, 
the environment or the kind of characters we're dealing with in the 90s. But they all get arrested, and Zarqawi is supposed to be in prison for 15 years, and that would have kept him behind bars until 2009. You could just think about the, the, sort of the dates there. But uh, then history intervenes in that the king of Jordan dies in 1999. King Hussein dies after a long reign. And in Jordan, there's a tradition when a sovereign passes away, a general amnesty is, is granted to political prisoners. And who gets on the list is decided by this complicated process involving tribes and uh, parliament members, and 2,000 and some names were submitted to the king for, for amnesty. And being this young king and looking to, to make sure his relations with the tribes are good, he signs the list, and off uh, you know, into freedom goes Sarkawi and, and pretty much his entire gang. Uh, and they head back to Afghanistan. They look to become terrorists again, and and that's that's why he's free and available to do jihad when when the U.S. is ready to invade Iraq in 2003. I want to talk about his strategy and tactics. Um, his strategy seemed to be in in Iraq after the invasion of, uh, of the Americans to uh, sow chaos, right, and to divide Sunni against Shiite, isolate the Americans. He was very successful. Yeah, it's remarkable when you look at it, because, again, this is somebody without formal education or, or even significant military training. But he had a couple of really big ideas, and one of them was that he was going to turn Iraq into chaos, as you said. He wanted to defeat the Americans and drive them away. He wanted to sort of defeat the Shiites, who were the majority in the country and, and were taking over the leadership. And so he, he did a couple things. One, he decided to go after every group every organization that could give a cover or legitimacy to the U.S. occupation. So he attacks the Red Cross, he attacks Arab embassies, he, he attacks the U.N. mission, and, and we, with great effect. And so he begins driving away everybody who could help us. Uh, and then the second thing he does is he goes after the Sunni-Shia fault line. There are two major branches of Islam there in Iraq, and he wants to get them fighting each other. They had lived more or less peacefully for decades under Saddam Hussein because one thing that uh, the dictator did was to make sure that uh, that he kept the peace between these two groups. But Zarqawi decided to sort of you know light the fuse by attacking Shiites in their mosques and then in their markets and in their schools and in just you know, starting this bloodbath, which then leads to waves of reprisal killings. And the first thing you know, the Americans who are essentially isolated now in Iraq are in the middle of a civil war with Sunnis and Shia killing each other and then also killing us. And so in that sense, his strategy was brilliant, and it worked absolutely perfectly. And his tactics, he, he I think this was purposeful, right? He wanted to stand out by just being the most brutal, with famous beheadings. He, he started those, right, and put that out. Right. And so he had this notion that, that there's, you know, people are somewhat used, unfortunately, to seeing bombings and terrorist attacks. There's nothing that, that's more viscerally horrible to witness than the execution of a single individual in a brutal way. And so he came up with this plan. He kidnapped an American businessman, this uh, Philadelphia man who happened to be in Iraq trying to start a business, takes him off the street, and then puts him in the orange jumpsuit, this image that we've all seen so many times now with ISIS, sets him in front of a camera, and then Zarqawi personally beheads the young man, and then puts that image on the Internet. And this is in 2004 at a time when you know broadband access is is really picking up and so this is this becomes one of the first big viral videos and you know millions of people around the world witness this horrific act of carnage where a young man is 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 beheaded uh by this terrorist leader 
Zarqawi takes credit for personally, for personally, and this becomes his signature. This becomes this sort of ultimate act of brutality, this ultimate, uh, you know, insult to Americans that begins to sort of turn public opinion here in this country. We're, we're seeing these horrific things taking place in, in Iraq, and, and as Americans, we're beginning to question, why are we there, and, and what, uh, what purpose are we serving? So it was effective in that way. I think effective in, in recruiting, as, as you mentioned uh, uh, as well, unfortunately, seems to become effective in the way he wanted it to. Yeah, and, and we, this country would, would see something like that and, and wonder why, why would a young man look at that video and, and think, I want to join this organization. It's really hard for us to get our heads around. But for many of these more radical young men, who, 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 in their minds, see the world as essentially, you know, their countries have been taken from them by, by Western powers. You know, these are countries that, that didn't exist a century ago, countries like Israel, for one, but Jordan, and it's the Iraqi borders, and Syria, and Lebanon, all these countries as they exist today were essentially created by colonial powers, you know, a century ago, and they see, you know, Western governments exploiting their, you know, their oil resources, you know, you know, depriving them of their ability to practice the religion as they want to, you know, propagating corrupt Western values. And so here is a, a young terrorist in, in, uh, in Iraq who's not like bin Laden. He's not some old man, you know, reading sermons on a script. He's actually doing things. He's in the faces of the Americans, just you know, humiliating them. And that was a very sort of powerful allure to, to many of these young men, not, not a majority, it's a small minority, but, but enough of them kind of thought the same way and felt kind of vindicated by what they were seeing on video that they wanted to join. Now, the visceral reaction, I remember when I first saw the, you know, the first video, the first few, it's, it, it is a visceral reaction. And you can kind of understand, uh, you know, President-elect Trump when he on the campaign trail. You can understand the emotion behind it. You know, we got to bomb the heck out of ISIS, um, you know, we kill their families. I mean, we're repulsed by his statements, but it, it's it comes from a visceral reaction to the ISIS's tactics as well. Yeah, and that's absolutely true. And I I travel around the country, you know, talking to people about this subject, and it's it's always striking to me how that even in in rural areas and areas that really have no particular reason to worry about terrorism, they are unsettled by what they see ISIS doing. You know, they're, they're, of course, we're all unsettled and, and horrified by 9-11, but, but these shocking videos that ISIS puts out, you know, really do sort of gnaw at your, at, at your sensibilities and, and just, and you want to lash back. I mean, I've, I've witnessed, you know, hundreds of these things, and it's, it's just, it's, it never ceases just to be horrific, and it kind of wears away at your, your soul in a way. But, you know, this is exactly what ISIS wants to do. It wants to get our attention, and it wants us to make us afraid, it wants us to make us do things that seem kind of counterintuitive, like crack down on, on Muslims. They want us to to make Muslims feel persecuted, feel victims of a backlash, because that divides uh, the Muslim community even more and helps people gravitate to their side because they see themselves being persecuted. So let's uh, uh, use this as a launchpad to, to uh, and we'll loop back and get more of the story, but to bring it forward to today, uh, you know, as I referenced President-elect Trump said some things on the campaign trail, which uh, I think you're saying would be counterproductive. What would you advise uh, a President Trump to, to do in terms of counterterrorism measures, specifically against ISIS? Yeah, I think, you know, leaders sometimes hear things like my statements a moment ago, and I think it's, it maybe sounds like it's just PC talk. But if you look at ISIS's literature, they're, they're very deliberate in what they're seeking to do. 
there was a uh, English language publication they put out uh, that, to appeal to their followers throughout the world because they realized that uh, that many of their potential recruits are not able to speak Arabic. Many of them speak French or, or English or Russian. And so they put out their publications in multiple languages. And one interesting article that came out just before the Paris attacks talks about this, this phenomenon that they describe as the, the Muslim gray zone, particularly in Europe and other places as well. There are millions of you know, immigrants and children of immigrants that don't really feel at home in their adopted country. They, they live in you know, essentially sort of ghettoized areas, you know, the suburbs of, of, of Brussels and, and Paris. And, and this is a, it's a potential audience, you know, people who might potentially join their organization. And so one of the most effective things they can do from their point of view is to create terror that will result in a backlash against Muslim, Muslim immigrants. And if, if they can make Muslims feel uncomfortable in their own homes, if they can force governments to take repressive actions against Muslims, then suddenly you've got an 18-year-old Muslim kid living in, in uh, Saint-Denis outside Paris who feels not only a bit alienated from his, from his adopted home country, but feels really marginalized and suddenly has all the more reason to want to join or support this radical organization that, that claims to stand up for Muslims. So it's, it's a really interesting, complicated um, strategy on their part, but they're very deliberate about it. And so when you see them do things like, you know, you know kill people in, uh, in, the, in cafes in Paris, it's not because they think they're going to sort of drive France out of the coalition or, or, or force the government to crumble. They really want to get the French to do, you know, take repressive measures to make the Muslims in France feel even less uh, part of society than they are now. Let's go back to, uh, we'll take a break here in a minute. Uh, I want to go back to the, the end of Zarqawi. But before that, 2005, is kind of illustrative of, of uh, you know, American tactics, Western tactics. Um, apparently, uh, CIA or whoever it was got good intelligence on where Zarqawi would be. A drone started following him. Looked like we were going to be able to take him out. And, and then what happened? And <laughs> then he manages to get away. We have the three very frustrating years where, essentially, at the highest levels of our government, we were intent on taking out Zarqawi because he became not just a symbol, but in, in a real sense, the, 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 the threat against the American occupation in Iraq. And as people will remember, by 2006, 2007, before the surge happened, um, there, was, there was a pretty strong sentiment in the U.S. that we should just simply get out of Iraq and just, uh, just kind of declare victory and go home. But... Uh, but he, you know, his personal security was so good, and in some cases he was so lucky that he managed to avoid everything we threw at him. And what finally did work was uh, we started doing some pretty smart things, which we we'd actually now see taking place in uh, in, the, in the current battle against ISIS, which is, you know, very targeted, very precise uh, application of intelligence and firepower, special forces in country, you know, knocking down safe houses immediately exploiting intelligence to go after the next safe house the same day, and uh, just a high-tempo uh, intelligence and air power campaign against you know, a terrorist enemy. And that eventually is what wore uh, Zarqawi's organization down. It's what led to his death in 2006. And, uh, and eventually we were able to get a, a good portion of, of Sunni Iraqis to support this as well. And you remember they had this thing called the Anbar Awakening, where suddenly all these Sunni tribes were fighting with us against Sarkawi and his people instead of the other way around. Yeah, they got tired of of um, what uh, 
ISIS rule or what what preceded ISIS. Um, it, that 2005, I was. <laughs> it's it was comical in a way. It's it really not. Um, the the 2005 before the the uh, killed him. I think 2006. Um, this this drone, w- which was uh, poised to to kill uh, Zarqawi, reset. I guess it's set yeah. to re- to reset periodically. It, it went black. Yeah, it's one of those lucky moments. Uh, he had several narrow escapes like that. In this particular time, we had good intelligence on where he was going to be. We had our our people in place to intercept his his convoy. Uh, and at the, just the worst possible moment, the, the drone's camera reset itself. The computer mm. reset itself. So the screen went black. Every, all these people in Langley and in, in the, you know, the, the, the stations there in Iraq were just kind of screaming at the computer screens, but they, they lost sight of him. And his vehicle so careened off into a palm grove. He gets out of the car, uh, runs off someplace. We're able to find the vehicle and recover his laptop, his, a bunch of money, other really important documents, but Zarqawi got away probably by just a matter of minutes. Then finally, 2006, they dropped a bomb on his uh, place where he was staying. And it, interestingly, he he survived it long enough to, to, I guess, look into the eyes of of the Americans who arrived, and then he died. Yeah, this is a, really a, a, a powerful moment, because this this man who had sworn to, to drive us out of, out of Iraq, who, who was intent on creating this caliphate, who saw us as the enemy of everything that he stood for and fought us vigorously and, and successfully for so long. In the end, we found his hideout, we dropped this bomb, and yet he survived long enough to, to look in the eyes of the Special Forces guys who came to, to recover the body. And uh, there are different accounts about exactly what happened. He struggled, he tried to get out of this uh, stretcher that he was in and was kind of held in place uh, by the by the Special Forces people. And the I guess the damage from the, the concussion of the bomb that collapsed his lungs, and so he, he died a few minutes later. But he did he did know what happened to him, and he did know who did it to him. Let's take another break. When we come back, more, I want to pick this up. Uh, the hope, of course, uh, the, the Americans in the West was, I'm sure, that uh, if you get um, Zarqawi, then uh, perhaps the organization uh, is weakened, maybe fades away. That's not what happened, of course. Uh, we'll pick up the thread uh, Fast forward to 2010 and the the rise of, very interesting, the, the current leader, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi. Talk about him. And I want to ask uh, how ISIS governs and that, what people, what the life for people must be like under ISIS in those large swaths of uh, Syria and Iraq that they still control. The book is Black Flags, of, Black Flags The Rise of ISIS, and uh, the author is Pulitzer Prize winning reporter Joby Warwick. More following the break. On the next Backstory. As we all learned in grade school, the Pilgrims had plenty to be thankful for at the Harvest Celebration in 1621. But the menu was not one of them. It wasn't unusual to eat squirrel, and this was something I think that they would have probably not been thrilled to eat. This week on Backstory, the history of America's favorite feast day. We'll talk about Pilgrims, pigskin, and why the holiday really started 200 years after Plymouth Rock. Join us for a special edition of Backstory, Thanksgiving morning, beginning at 9, here on Utah Public Radio. Mr. Walsh, extraordinary accusations must be followed up by extraordinary proof. And you haven't come up with extraordinary proof. I kind of wondered, why was ordinary proof not enough? Join us for stories of disruptive neighbors, family roots, and one unbelievable con. That's on the Moth Radio Hour from PRX. Join us Saturday night at 6 on Utah Public Radio.
This program is made possible in part by a grant from the Pulitzer Prize's Centennial Campfires Initiative for collaboration between UPR, Utah Humanities, the Salt Lake Tribune, and KCPW. Thanks for joining us for Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams, talking with Pulitzer Prize winning reporter Joby Warwick. Uh, He works for the Washington Post. That's where he uh, joins us from. Uh, The book is Black Flags, The Rise of ISIS, and it's winner of the Pulitzer Prize, now out in uh, in paperback. Uh, So uh, Zarqawi is now dead, uh, 2006. Interestingly, uh, there are two Baghdadis who take over. Abu Omar al-Baghdadi was the leader from 2006 to 2010, and uh, then uh, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi takes over. I wonder if you could Tell us, Joby work about uh, about this latest uh, Abu Bakr al Baghdadi, who who rose up through through the ranks. Yeah, and and was quite different from Zarqawi in so many ways. This is someone who actually was a religious scholar, unlike Zarqawi, who didn't really know the Quran very well, and so didn't have any problems you know, violating its its fundamental tenets. Uh, Baghdadi was was a religious scholar who had the nimbleness of mind to be able to find ways to justify the terrible things that uh, that. That Zarqawi's gang was doing, and then later on ISIS, because he, you know, you can always find a, an obscure passage in the Quran or one of the hadiths that, uh, that that make it okay to do things like burn a pilot alive or or attack women and children in, in a mosque, even though that's strictly forbidden in in a in a, in a mainstream reading of, of Quranic passages. But uh, he ended up getting lucky in the sense that people around him, the number, the, the former leaders, and the number twos and threes. We're getting eliminated by the Americans, so he keeps rising up the chain, and he becomes valuable to the leaders of ISIS because he is—he's the perfect figurehead. He's not a warrior, he's not a military commander, but he is a religious scholar, so he has those credentials. He also happens to be from a tribe that claims to descend from Muhammad. So, if you're starting a caliphate, he's the perfect guy to be the caliph. He is the, he has the religious pedigree and sort of the, the scholarly stature that makes him an, uh, you know, an effective figurehead. We don't think he's all that involved in daily operations. He uh, just doesn't have the, the, the military know-how. And he's, he's a bit quiet, to say the least, at the moment. We almost never see him, and we think his security is, is so good, and maybe it's, it's personal paranoia is so deep that he just doesn't surface very often. I want to talk about the Arab Spring, 2011. Uh, there were great hopes on both sides. Uh, uh, you know, the, in the West, seemed like the people wanted democracy. On the side of ISIS, uh, I think they saw this as if if these governments can be toppled, then we can expand the caliphate. Yeah, I was uh, working for the Washington Post, actually covering Arab Spring, so I was in a lot of these countries, and 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 was very you know it was it was an amazing experience to be in 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 Egypt to be at Tara Tahrir Square or in Tunisia, you know these countries that have overthrown a dictatorship. Uh, and I actually just as a, a matter of personal history, I I covered the fall of the of the Berlin Wall in the in the 1980s and 90s, and and it was a similar feeling this this sense that you know history was 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 just changing completely, and we're, we're seeing this hopeful new era for these countries that have lived under oppressive rule for so long. And these young people sort of chanting for change in uh, in uh, Syria and in Cairo, they, they weren't they weren't wanting, they weren't uh, raising banners for al-Qaeda or, or wanting to be jihadists. They really wanted democracy and freedom. But these well-organized and, and very brutal jihadist groups took advantage of the opportunities they saw, particularly in Syria, we have a country that you know that was in a 
you know, in fact, there's a mass civil uprising that then becomes a civil war. The civil war creates security vacuums in parts of the country. There's lawlessness. There's uh, places where the government doesn't have control anymore. And that, for, uh, for the, you know, the followers of, of Zarqawi, became a perfect opportunity. And so they went from being almost destroyed, you know, you know there's very little left of, of Zarqawi's old movement in 2010, to being very quickly this budding new power. And they became the, the most powerful, most successful military force in, in Syria, and, and, and then rose to become the, the force that they are today in a fairly quick uh, period of time, only from about 2010 to 2012 or 13, you see this incredible transformation. I wonder um, how ISIS is at governing. What's the point of view of the people who are being governed, you know, ruled by ISIS? These are large swaths of land in, in Syria and in, in Iraq. This is one of the reasons that, that you can be somewhat hopeful about uh, the future of this organization, because they always tend overreach to begin with. Their brutality is too extreme and just too unsettling to too many people. They create too many enemies. But it also turns out just about nobody wants to live under under the control of, of people like this. Uh, in the beginning, I remember in 2013 when uh, uh, we started seeing ISIS becoming successful in Syria, there are tribesmen in, on the, so the Syrian-Iraqi border that, that looked hopefully at ISIS, thinking that, well, well, these guys can be our liberators, and and they're not going to be so bad. They're, they can't be any worse than the Maliki government, and they basically opened the door for ISIS to come in in 2014. But then in short order, you see a very disaffected population. You see people reacting to the brutality, the executions, the floggings, you know, the, the sort of the morality police that go around beating women because their, their uh, robes aren't quite thick enough or... And, and it just very quickly they were out there welcome, and so without exception, you see when when uh, when cities are free devices, the people celebrate. The people are you know, are just very glad to get rid of them, and in a way that becomes the most effective counter ISIS message. It's the experience of people who lived under the you know the rule of these supposedly great righteous Muslims and see that they're anything but that. They're actually hypocritical. They're brutal. They're criminal. They're not at all. Um, ideologically pure, as they say they are. Just a couple of minutes left. I know we have to let you go so you can get on to another point, but uh, I wonder what the prospects, what do you think the prospects are for driving ISIS out of their territories? Battle uh, for Mosul is going on right now. Yeah, and it's it's a slow slog, as we said in the beginning. Uh, eventually, you know, the forces arrayed against ISIS are, are going to prevail, just because of numbers. There's something like 5,000 fighters in Mosul left, we think, and against them we have 100,000 uh, troops, you know, the Kurds, the Iraqi regulars, Shia militias on the on the western outskirts of town. And so they're all converging on, on this Iraqi capital of ISIS, and they're eventually going to succeed. And they're backed by, you know, all the technology that we can give them from, you know, real-time, you know, intelligence on the ground to so drone strikes and, and aircraft strikes. And so it's having an effect, and eventually ISIS is going to lose its capitals, first in, in Mosul and eventually in, in Syria as well. And those are, that's a hugely important development because once the caliphate goes away, then sort of the myth is crushed in a way. This is organization that so famously claimed to, you know, declare the, 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 the caliphate two years ago, have, they've lost it. They no longer have it. And so that's, that's, a, that's a big blow to morale and then to their propaganda image. But also the loss of territory means it's much harder for ISIS to 
raise money to train recruits to do the kinds of things that we've seen them do in reaching out to, to you know, to, in terrorist attacks around the world. They'll still be dangerous and they'll still be powerful in their own way, but their effectiveness is going to be diminished once they lose control of this territory. Well, the book is Black Flags, The Rise of ISIS. It's winner of the Pulitzer Prize uh, and a fascinating read. Joby Warwick, a Washington Post reporter, has uh, joined us. So thank you so much. Really enjoyed it. Thanks for having me. And uh, we hope you'll uh, join us tomorrow, Thanksgiving Day. We'll have some special programs uh, for you, and you can check out our holiday programming uh, schedule on our website, upr.org. Thanks for listening today. Next up is Bread and Butter, a culinary chronicle with Lael Gilbert. There's no better holiday for the enthusiastic home chef than Thanksgiving. And nothing is more iconic than setting a creamy, fragrant, perfectly baked pumpkin pie squarely on your Thanksgiving table. Truth be told, if you can hold a whisk and crack an egg, pumpkin pie is really not that hard to pull together. Especially if you use conveniently canned pumpkin puree instead of the fresh stuff. Wait, you might wonder, can you even make pumpkin pie with the actual gourd? Yes, it turns out you can. Not the carving variety, but the sweeter and smaller sugar pumpkins that you might have seen at the grocery store. It is kind of a pain, with lots of steps. You have to seed and bake and cool and puree, and to be honest, those kind of pies never turn out quite as good as when you use the canned stuff. Always a little watery or stringy, and not quite as creamy or flavorful. Here's why. It turns out that the stuff in the can is not actually pumpkin. That's right. Many brands of pureed pumpkin are actually made from one or more types of winter squash. Even if the label says 100% pumpkin, there is no botanical definition for pumpkins that distinguish them from squash. The USDA just requires that the canned product be prepared from properly matured, golden-fleshed, firm-shelled, sweet varieties of either pumpkin or squashes. Somehow, squash pie doesn't have the same ring to it as pumpkin, does it? How about a second piece of squash pie? Do you want a dollop of whipped cream on your squash? How about a nice spiced squash latte to finish your meal? In the end, it seems the best approach to this and to many other food situations is just not to think too hard about it and eat. But if it really bugs you, you can opt for buying the Libby's brand, which you'll find on the shelves of most grocery stores. They use a strain of Dickinson pumpkins with especially creamy flesh. But at the risk of completely messing with your mind, I have to tell you that this variety bears more resemblance to a butternut squash than the orange pumpkin sitting on your front porch. This is Lael Gilbert for Bread and Butter. Jazz and Steve Williams are coming to Utah Public Radio. UPR is partnering with KCPW to bring you Jazz Time with Steve Williams. Jazz Time with Steve Williams features live performances, interviews, commentary, history, a jazz calendar of events, and of course, lots of music curated by legendary radio host Steve Williams. 
From ragtime to bop, from Havana to Paris to Salt Lake City, from Billie Holiday to Joe Lovano, Steve is your guide through the many varieties of jazz, past and present. Help you join us for Jazz Time with Steve Williams, Sunday evenings, 6 to 10, beginning December 4th, right here on Utah Public Radio. Next time on Ask Me Another, we meet NPR's Tiny Desk Contest winner, Galen Lee. She performs her winning song and then quizzes NPR Music's Bob Boylan about things you can find in a desk. Ibuprofen, Advil, Rhymes with Xylenol. Oh, Tylenol, yeah. (laughs) Join me, Ophira Eisenberg, on NPR's Hour of Puzzles, Word Games, and Trivia. Join us Saturday morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. This is Terry Guy, Development Officer at Utah Public Radio. UPR is a statewide public radio station serving the citizens of Utah since 1953. Our listeners are educated, socially conscious, and enjoy arts and culture. They are your loyal patrons. If you're looking to make a smart business decision, become a UPR sponsor. For more information, call 435-797-3141. Utah Public Radio is a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSU FM Logan, also heard at upr.org.